um, because it's so important. And so I want you to be praying about that and thinking about that because our deacons provide a valuable service here at North Park. And we want to make sure we take that um, nominating process very seriously. Um, also, you'll notice um, at our next business meeting, which is coming up at the end of the month, uh, we have a proposed bylaws change. If you're curious about that, you can also see that at the front desk as well. And so just uh, a lot of exciting things going on. We've already mentioned the mortgage burning and things of that nature. Uh, and business meetings normally um, aren't something the Baptists get real excited about. Uh, we tend to dread them. Uh, this is one to get excited about. And so we've got a great testimony to celebrate of what God has done and his faithfulness to us here um, through the paying off of the mortgage and generosity of his people. And so we're grateful for that and grateful for what God is doing here. It's kind of a new day for us here. And we're trying to steward that well as we move forward and to position ourselves to be ready for whatever God wants to do in the future. You know, when I played baseball in high school, it was important um, that you're always ready and in position for the ball to come your way. And uh, that's what we're trying to do right now in the coming weeks and the coming months here at North Park. We sense that God's at work and we want to position ourselves for whatever God's going to send our way so that we can steward it appropriately uh, in a way that honors him. So prayerfully consider those things and uh, exciting times. And so hope you'll plan to be with us at the end of the month on September 27th. Now, this morning, uh, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3. And as we get ready to dive into that, I want to open us up in a word of prayer as we transition from, uh, from this time into a time of uh, learning God, studying God's word together. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful this morning for the word of God. And we are so thankful that we get to open it today. And God, we pray that you'd speak to us. Um, we don't want it to just be cold um, and just being a man standing up here teaching uh, from your word. We ask that your spirit teach us today and to enlighten us to understand spiritual truth and spiritual things and to take your word and to apply it to our hearts and lives. We know that only the Holy Spirit can change hearts and can change lives and we seek life change today. And so we ask for that in our lives as individuals and corporately in, our, in this body. We thank you for the church that is North Park and thank you for the word um, that we have here this morning to dive into together. And we pray that you would help us to have ears to hear and help us to respond to your word with faith and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're in Revelation chapter 3, and we are finishing a series that we have been doing for the last several weeks in the book of Revelation, where we have been looking at the seven churches of Revelation. These were real deal churches um, that were ex in existence in the first century. A lot of these cities uh, have are just, you know, other cities have been built on top of their ruins since then. But these particular churches were for real churches in the first century that Jesus spoke to and he addressed particular issues in their church at the beginning of Revelation. But he also said he wanted these letters to be read to all the churches. So when he wrote to Ephesus, he wanted Laodicea to hear what he said to Ephesus. And he wanted Pergamum to hear what he said to Thyatira and all these things because this is a word for all churches. And what we learn as we've been going through this is that some of the things that they struggled with some 2,000 years ago are some of the very same things churches struggle with today. And not a lot has changed as much as we think it has in the last 2,000 years. Churches still have issues. Churches still have problems. No church is perfect. And we've seen that in these churches. We are imperfect people seeking Christ's likeness together. And even the best churches aren't perfect churches. But today we look at a church that not only was it not perfect, it's unhealthy, and not only is it unhealthy, it's literally a walking catastrophe. It's Commentators uh, all agree pretty much that this is the worst, if there can be a worst, of the seven churches. There is no good commendation in the church that we're going to read about this morning. It's also the one that gets talked about the most of these seven churches. It's probably the one you're most familiar with. It's the lukewarm church in Laodicea. So this morning, what we're going to see, and what I want you to see from God's Word, is that Jesus is not pleased by lukewarm, self-sufficient, proud people. 
In fact, we're going to read this morning in Revelation 3 that it it nauseates Jesus when we're proud and self-sufficient and lukewarm with our faith. And the only hope for lukewarm people this morning, and here's the good news, is there is hope, is that it will realize our insufficiency on our own, cast ourselves on Christ's mercy, depending on His grace, and allow Him to work and move and change and heal our hearts because Jesus isn't satisfied with lukewarm faith. And Jesus didn't die for us to have lukewarm faith. And Jesus didn't rise from the dead for us to have lukewarm faith. So what is lukewarm faith and what does it look like? We'll see that this morning in Revelation chapter 3. So look with me, starting in verse 14. Chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. So that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus ends every letter to these churches with that phrase. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this particular church was the church in Laodicea. Now this was a great city in its day. It had a location that put it at a crossroads that was critical for commerce in the area. It was at an intersection of three trade routes in this Roman province. And therefore... Laodicea was a very wealthy, self-sufficient city because of all this. This was a city that was famous for wealthy citizens it even had. It was a banking center and was known for its banking center. It also had a a particular kind of sheep in Laodicea that were known for their very soft glass block uh, black wool. And so they would make clothing from this and sell the clothing. So it was a major clothing area um, because of this wool. It was also a city that held great medical importance. They were particularly known for their eye care. And so they would make ointments and salves that would go uh, on eyes and was shipped all around the different places. And so a very important city, a very um, wealthy city, a city with um, a lot going for it. Though really the only thing in Laodicea that they didn't have going for it, they didn't have good water to drink. Um, their water sources there were very muddied and not good to drink. But there were a couple of good water sources outside of there. So they actually had de- developed a, a way to get water, a piping system that they have found. Archaeology, more recent archaeology has found to get the water from those places to Laodicea. And so once they had that, they really did kind of have everything. In fact, they were so self-sufficient that a major hurri- uh, hurricane, <laughs> see where my head's at, uh, earthquake hit the area about A.D. 60. And while other places looked for Rome for help to rebuild their city, they didn't. They had so many resources on their own, we said, we don't need Rome's help, and they rebuilt their city themselves. A very independent, self-sufficient city. And the problem we see here is that in the worst kind of way, the church has taken on the personality of the city. It has become a, it's a wealthy, self-sufficient, independent, do-it-myself kind of church, and Jesus is about to spit it 
out of his mouth. And so Jesus introduces himself to this church by saying, I am the amen, the faithful and true witness. Meaning, he's the faithful one, right? This is a church that's very unfaithful. This is a church that can't be counted on. As you can just read through it, you can tell, very harsh rebuke. And Jesus is saying, I'm someone you can count on. I always speak the truth. This church says, we're this way, we're rich, and we're th-. and Jesus says, no, you're this way. They needed the one who is the faithful witness to speak truth into their lives and reveal their true spiritual condition. So they're unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. And Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Now, a lot of cults have been built on those four words, okay? Um, when the Bible says Jesus is the beginning of God's creation, it doesn't mean he's the first one created. It means all creation begins With him, not in the sense that he was created, but he is the agent of creation. Jesus is not one created by the Father. He's one who created with the Father. He is present with God in creation, in creating God. The Bible tells us in John 1, another book written by the the guy that wrote Revelation, John, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And He goes on to reveal to us in John 1 that the Word... Is Jesus. So Jesus has always been. He's not a creation of God. He is the agent of creation. He's the one through whom God created everything. And he is the ruler over all of God's creation. Some translations actually translate that word there, beginning ruler. Because it can be translated that way. And so he's the ruler over all of God's creation. And so if we miss that, and we turn Jesus into just another created being... You end up with a Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible. And you've got to make sure. When we talk about Jesus saves and we're Jesus people and we worship Jesus and we love Jesus, you've got to make sure we're talking about the right Jesus. Because there are faux Jesuses out there. You know, kind of like you go to uh, Home Depot and you can buy some faux wood blinds. They look like wood blinds, but they're not really wood blinds. They're faux. I used to think it was fox, but it's faux, you know. From Alabama, public education in Alabama, okay. And so, but it's, it's imitation, And any Jesus that's not God, any Jesus that's not creator, any Jesus that's not sovereign, any Jesus that's not eternal is not the Jesus of the New Testament. It's an imposter. It's a false Jesus. And so we have to make sure we have the right Jesus. So Jesus says, I am the beginning of God's creation. He's using language very similar to what's used in Colossians. Colossians is a book that references Laodicea. It's a town, Colossae was a town that was nearby Laodicea, and it was a letter that this church would have most likely been very familiar with. And into the book of Colossians, Paul writes, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. In verse 18, the apostle Paul writes, he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. And that's the key. That's the point. Jesus is the not created one. He's the preeminent one. He is the one that's exalted above all things and above all creation. Jesus is the sovereign one. And so that's what he's trying to drive home for us. And right there in that introduction, we can already see what Jesus wants us to understand here as he heads into his rebuke, is that Jesus is everything we aren't and everything we need. Okay, this church was unfaithful. Jesus is faithful. We are weak. Jesus is strong, right? He is everything that we're not in a lot of ways, but he's exactly what we need. He is the one with the authority and the power over all creation to step into our situation. And he is the one who is faithful and who is true, who can be relied upon and who can speak into our situation. And then he begins to evaluate in verse 15. I know your works. He always says that. Is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing, right? It's, you know, he's making a list. He's checking it to all the cynical, uh, right? But he's, he knows your works. He knows what's going on. And what does he say? You're neither hot nor cold. You're neither cold nor hot. 
I wish that you were, I would, I wish that you were either cold or hot. But you're not, you're lukewarm. So I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. And what we see here is that Jesus will not tolerate a lukewarm approach to the faith. I mentioned earlier that Laodicea had a pipe in their drinking, they had to pipe in their drinking water from other towns. See, in nearby Colossae, which was a city nearby, there was a cool spring. That was, it was actually known for its drinking water. You know, we think about places that are known for bottling water and selling it for 4 or $5 a bottle. Um, they maybe could have done that in, in, in where the Colossians were from in Colossae, but they had this cool spring. It was known for fresh drinking water very close by, not too far by from Laodicea. And also, they had a place called Aeropolis that was known for its warm springs. They had these hot springs, excuse me, not warm springs, hot springs, that were known for their healing agents for the body. And so people would go and bathe in the hot springs. And so what they had to do was pop water out of Aeropolis. And they've actually found the piping work through excavation that they did this. And by the time that the hot springs got to Laodicea, they were no longer hot springs. They were lukewarm springs. It was lukewarm water. And Jesus is saying, that's kind of what your faith is like. It's not the, the healing agent of the hot springs. It's not the refreshing cool drink of water of the cool springs. It's lukewarm and I'm going to spit it out of my mouth. And because you've ever tried to drink something lukewarm, it's usually not good, right? So I love sweet tea, iced sweet tea. Not the kind of sweet tea that people around here make. Uh, the kind of sweet tea that they find up in rural parts of Alabama that hummingbirds feed on and that, you know, you can... Turn into an ice block and put it out in your yard, and deer will come and, and eat off of it. Right? Sweet tea that just that you know looks like bees would be buzzing around it. I'm talking very sweet tea. That's what I like. But I like it ice cold. And Christie's even taught me to like it hot. She's refined me a little bit, but I do not like it after it's been sitting in the cup for a while outside on a hot deck, and then I go take a swig of lukewarm sweet tea. That is nasty, right? And I would spit it out of my mouth. Now, I had to use a sweet tea illustration because I don't drink enough water. But for some of you, you could say the same thing about water, right? It's it, lukewarm water is not good. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, it's just useless. It's not pleasant. And he's saying, you're, the way you're living your Christian life is not pleasing to me. In fact, it, it nauseates me. and It makes me want to spew it out of my mouth. It's a very vivid picture that Jesus paints. Now... What is lukewarm faith? Well, first off, I believe lukewarm faith is stale and unproductive. Now, we have, when we interpret this passage, we kind of have two options. And a lot of times you hear the option of it's hot, cold, and lukewarm. And so you're either on fire for Jesus, you hate Jesus, or you're somewhere in the middle. And Jesus wishes you would either love him or hate him, and he don't want you to be in the middle. I don't think Jesus wants anybody to hate him. So I don't really think that's what he's driving at here. When you look at in context, and context is always king, you look at what's going on. When they would have read this, understanding their water situation that was very predominant in their day, they would have knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. He's saying, we're not refreshing, we're not healing, we're not productive, our works are you know, kind of dead, and Jesus finds what we're doing very unpleasant. So I think that's really the main thing he's driving at there. Now, there was probably a tepidness, kind of a, a mundaneness, kind of a nominal, a nominal kind of view of their Christianity. It was, it was very bland, and there wasn't a spark and a fervor to it. I do believe that. They were kind of going through the motions. But most likely, Jesus is pointing to their faith's out out, outright lack of productivity and usefulness and fruitfulness. It's a stale, unproductive faith. It's a good-for-nothing, fruitless faith. It was so lukewarm that Jesus was ready to spit them out. They nauseated him. Now, here's the scary thing. They're going to church. 
They're there to hear this letter read. They, they are people that are attending and, are, and involved. And they think surely a lot of things are good are going on here, right? It's a wealthy place. They've probably got a big budget. Things seem to be going well. Um, they can kind of do for themselves. But at the end of the day, Jesus is sickened by what's happening there. This was not a place for the hurting to find healing. It was not a place for the thirsty to find refreshment. It was more of a social club than it was a local church. They were failing to be everything a church should be. They were disconnected from Jesus, disconnected from his mission, disconnected from making disciples. And their lukewarmness, as it always is, it was rooted in pride and self-reliance. Jesus says, you think you're rich. You say you're prosperous. You say you're in need of nothing, but Jesus says you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. They think they need nothing. Jesus says you actually need everything. See, this church had become spiritually what the city was practically. The heart of the city had become the spiritual heart of the church. It was a proud city that had done well and didn't need outside help, as we mentioned earlier. But spiritually, that's a very destructive characteristic. The self-driven life is a fruitless life. right? Your greatest enemy in the Christian life is you. It's your flesh. It's, your, it's, it's you fighting for the throne, if you will, in your life. You fighting for possession and rulership of your life. And the self-life produces no fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit we want to produce. And only you can only be ruled by self or the Spirit. And this church was more and more and more being ruled by their self. They thought they didn't need what Christ had to offer. They were wretched and pitiable, Jesus says. They thought their condition was desirable. Jesus says it's deplorable, it's pitiable. Now remember their strengths. They were a banking center and wealthy. And Jesus says, you say you're rich, you're poor. They were known for their medical center with their eye care. And Jesus says, you're blind. They were known for their clothing made from their famed uh, black sheep's wool that was so soft. And Jesus says, you have no clothes on, you're naked before me. And so everything that they thought they had, everything that they were counting on, all their little false idols, all their little false securities are torn down by Jesus. Everything that they were holding on to, propping themselves up in the eyes of God, propping themselves up in the eyes of the world, everything that they were beginning to root their identity in, more and more, Jesus says, is actually nothing before me. You stand empty. Because, see, Jesus is not looking to share the throne in our lives. And if you're the king of your life, if I'm the king of my life, then we're not submitting to Jesus as king. Because you can't have two kings. Not really. There can only be one ruler. And living a self-centered, lukewarm life leads to this lukewarm faith that's nauseating to Jesus. Because pride empowers the self. Humility, though, seeks help, seeks a savior, right? And so we can only be pursuing pride or we can be pursuing humility. And as believers, we haven't arrived in the area of humility. We should be pursuing humility and killing pride and seeking more and more to be dependent on the Lord Jesus. Because a life built on the self will never bear the fruit of the Spirit. You know, one of Canon's favorite things now, he's two, He'll be three in December. Is 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 to say, is when you try to help him, he likes to say this, self, no self. You'll go over and you know he wants this, and so you go over to try to help him. No, self. You know, so he wants to change his shirt. He wants to try to put on his shoes. Now, when he gets stuck, then he'll say what he used to always say, which is help you, not help me, help you. He's kind of not figured out the pronoun thing, but he'll say help you. And then when he doesn't want help, he'll say self. Now we're hoping at some point here soon that he'll start applying this um, self. To, um, to, to the bathroom. 
Um, but until then, uh, we'll continue down the road we're on with the diapers. But he's very, you know, self. You know, and I read something, a quote this week that I thought kind of hit the nail on the head when we think about this. You know, Cannon's growing up, right? He's becoming a little boy from a toddler, and then he'll become one day a teenager and an adult, and he'll begin to function on himself. And I read this quote this week that child maturity basically, he said, child maturity um, is becoming less and less dependent on your father. Whereas spiritual maturity is becoming more and more dependent on your father. And see, some, we have a habit of kind of getting that mixed up. And we can kind of be like the toddler who's self, 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 want to do it myself. And because that in growing up, that's natural. It's the natural pulling away and becoming more independent. But in spiritual maturity is literally reverse. It's the upside downness of the kingdom, right? And it's, no, I need to become more and more dependent on my father. I need to be dependent completely on him. And as you grow spiritually, you learn more and more just how much in need of him you are. But we tend to get that crossed. But if you become more independent from Christ, you will become less productive for Christ. You can't be independent from him and productive for him. Because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do what? A few things, some things. No, Jesus said in John 15 that apart from me, you can do nothing. There's nothing you can do of any good or any value in the spiritual realm apart from the Lord Jesus. This is a church that is beginning to pursue life apart from seeking Him. Apart from abiding in Him. And His Word abiding in them, as Jesus spoke of in John 15. So what will Jesus say to him? Well, this is Jesus' counsel. You saw it there in verse 18. I counsel you. He could say, I command, but Jesus says, I'm going to give you some free consultation here. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See, Jesus is being very clear here. You have to come to me from this. Everything that you need, only I can give. He's, he's pointing them back to a dependency on him. You need to come buy from me. Now, he doesn't mean literally they need to purchase these things. It's, 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 it's obviously a metaphor here that Jesus' point is the things you need can only be acquired in me. Only I have what you need. And the, the big takeaway here is that only Jesus can heal the lukewarm heart. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus has what... This particular people needs. Only Jesus has what this particular people needs. And the good news of the Bible is that Jesus offers what we need. It's very similar language that that the Lord uses in Isaiah 55. Familiar verse, Isaiah 55 verse 1 says this. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Right? Is that You have no money, but come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's the great offer from God to come to Him for everything you need. And Jesus is making that same offer in Revelation. He's not saying bring your money to me and purchase it. His point is you can only acquire it. You can only get it from me. Because only Jesus gives true wealth. He says you need gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. Some commentators point out how gold many times in the Bible is a symbol for faith. And also, the refined by fire many times is used to talk about faith that has been tested, right? And that maybe they need genuine faith. And both those who are in this church, and we'll talk about this here in a moment, who were outside of Christ, and those who are in this church who are in Christ, who are believers in Christ, both of them needed the same thing, which was faith in Christ. For some first-time saving faith, for some deeper faith and trust in Him. But the way we come to Christ and the way we grow in Christ is the same. It's faith. And ultimately, 
growing in Christ means understanding that all your wealth and all your true riches are only found in Christ. The Bible says in Christ we have every spiritual blessing. The Bible says we have this rich inheritance in Christ that doesn't fade away and it doesn't perish. And so the Bible is very clear in the New Testament that our greatest wealth and our greatest riches are found in Christ. And only He gives wealth that can't fade or pass away. And only Jesus can cover our sin and our shame. He says, you need white garments. He says, I, he says you know, I see. You're, you're naked. You're, you're shameful. And you need to cover this. And you need to come to me to get these white garments. You don't need the, the black garments from the black wool that you've created. You need white garments that come from me. Now, this is a town that could provide their own clothes. But Jesus says the kind of clothes that you can provide can't take care of the kind of problem that you have. And the truth is we may do some things to try and make up for our sin, to cover our shame. However, the Bible's very clear. There's no good deed. There's no righteous act. There's nothing we can do to take away or cover our sin and our shame. We need Jesus to not only remove our sin, but to cover us with his righteousness. And that's what happens on the cross, right? Jesus goes to the cross and dies for us, in our place, absorbing the wrath of God, absorbing the punishment we deserve, being judged for us, so that our sin, our slate, so to speak, can be wiped clean. And then he takes and he clothes us with his righteousness. And the perfect, sinless life that Jesus lives comes and gets accredited to our account. The, The righteousness that justifies before God is not the kind you work up over time by living a good life. It's the kind that's imputed to you, that's given to you, that's placed upon you by grace through faith in Jesus. And as believers, we need to be growing and maturing in this idea that there's nothing that we bring before God that's of any value apart from Christ. You don't come to Christ by faith and then grow by works. You don't come to Christ by faith and by the Spirit and then grow by the flesh. There's a whole book written about that, right? Galatians. We we don't come to Christ one way and grow in Christ another. We grow in our dependency on Him and applying the gospel to our lives and come into a deeper understanding of what we need. And the way you begin to live a practically righteous life begins with understanding positionally you already are in Jesus. And by faith, beginning to make the choices that live that out. Because those who are positionally righteous with Christ, His righteousness covering them, will pursue a life of righteousness. In Christ. Your position will change your pursuit. And if it doesn't, we need to question our position. Are we in Christ? And then Jesus, only Jesus, gives true sight. He says, I give salves so that you may see. Remember, they're known for their eye care. They're known for making ointments and salves. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm not talking about physically. I'm talking about spiritually. You need something only I can give. You're blind to your spiritual condition. You need spiritual discernment. You need spiritual understanding. You think things are great. Things are not great. It's showing your spiritual blindness that you're walking in right now. They couldn't see their need. You know, a lot of times when we don't see our need spiritually, when we don't understand how far we've gotten, it's not because we haven't drifted. It's not because we don't have sin in our life. It's because we can't see it because we've developed such nearsightedness and such blindness in our own lives. Just because you think you're okay doesn't mean you're okay. That's why we have the Bible talks about using the Bible like a mirror to look at your life. And if we just walk around thinking everything's okay between us and God and that we're living the kind of life that Jesus wants us to live, but we're not opening up and looking in the mirror, then we're just doing guesswork. It's like getting up in the morning and just heading out and just assuming that everything's good, right? We've got to look in the mirror. We've got to look in the mirror and we've got to make the adjustments. But these folks, they, 
were becoming blind. Their affluence and their wealth was blinding them to their spiritual emptiness and poverty and the fact that apart from Christ they would have nothing. You can't have spiritual life or spiritual success and growth apart from faith in Christ and radical dependency on Him. True spirituality is rooted in deep dependence on Jesus. Deep dependence on Jesus. Now, the big debate among Bible students when you study this passage, if you want to dig into all that, is what is the spiritual state of this church? There are whole commentaries written supporting one view or another. All right, And what I mean by that is this. Some believe that this is an apostate church. And what I mean by that is that this is a church that has completely left the faith. That there's not a single Christian in this church. And that's why Jesus says you're blind, you're naked, you're empty. You know, and he goes through the list. Some believe that this is a group of people who are just kind of backslidden in their faith. That they, they're genuinely saved, but they're just at this stage where they've kind of wandered away from Christ. And that Jesus is trying to get their attention and call them back to repentance. Well, I think this church most likely had some believers and had some unbelievers in it. I think you, you find it very hard to draw a line in the sand very harshly one way or the other. I believe there were a lot of people that professed faith in Christ, had been baptized, were a part of this local church, maybe even the majority of this church, but who in fact, they did not possess what they professed. Their faith without works was dead. Their faith was dead. It wasn't saving faith. And they had just enough church to feel safe, even though they were on a road to being damned. And Jesus is trying to get their attention. I also believe, though, that there were some in this church who were believers, who had genuinely been saved. But where you find the faithful remnants in other parts of this book, in other parts of Revelation, the first three chapters of these churches, there's the faithful group of Christians. I think even the believers here were becoming less and less faithful. And wandering farther and further. And Jesus is getting their attention. And I think the true spiritual condition of the people in this church. Is mostly revealed in the way they responded to this letter. And that we don't really know. Because see Christians repent. Christians repent. Christians turn. Christians respond to the discipline of God. Which is being enacted here. And they don't just continue apart from Christ. They don't just continue to pursue the self life. They don't just continue to reject being led by the spirit. And so I think it's kind of a mix here. But here's the issue. Here's what we don't need to miss. And sometimes I think with all the commentaries and all the debate, we miss the big idea. We get all lost. Is this church saved or is this church lost? Here's the problem with this church. That 2,000 years later, people have PhDs in Greek and Hebrew and they can't settle on the spiritual condition of this church. That's the Laodicean problem. That's the problem with lukewarmness. The problem with lukewarmness is that maybe Jesus, if he wrote you a personal letter this morning about your spiritual condition and handed it to you, and it fell out of your pocket on the way out of church, and next Sunday you came in and we decided we were going to read this letter from Jesus to everybody, that he wrote to you, and that we all walked out of here going, now, are they a Christian or not a Christian? I'm confused. Jesus said he loved them, but he also said he was going to spit them out of his mouth. Which one is it, right? That's the problem. That's the problem. The problem is that there's a debate at all. That's the problem with lukewarmness. And that's the danger that you need to understand. If you're living in a perpetual state of lukewarmness, you are on shaky ground. And there is not a lot that I can give you to encourage you about whether or not you have true saving faith. 
And sometimes it's a believer who's wandered from the faith and, and they need the Lord's discipline and they come back and they repent and they're in this season or whatever. And sometimes it's somebody that just, man, at the end of the day, you've always been lukewarm. You've never been converted. You've never loved Jesus enough to obey Him. You've never loved people enough to show them. You've, ne- you've just never exemplified a converted heart. And that person is not someone that, well, I'm backslidden. You, from what? Right? From depravity? We have to be very careful that we don't read passages like this and, and, and use it to, well, I'm just, I'm just lukewarm these days. I mean, really? Can we say that flippantly? When Jesus says he's going to spit it out of his mouth? When, when, when people read this and debate the spiritual condition of a church, it should concern us. But even believers, even true, genuine, saved believers have lukewarm tendencies. We do. We do. Everyone's had moments or seasons of selfish living and times where you lived your life in a way inconsistent with, one, with who you are in Christ. That's the battle we face in this life. And if you're in Christ, the call this morning is for you to examine your life and look for lukewarm t- tendencies and to examine for spiritual drift. And realize that only Jesus could have saved you and only Jesus can sustain you. We should read this letter with fear and trembling and respond with repentance and faith. And you should be terrified this morning if you can shrug it off. You should be worried this morning if you can read this letter and it not disturb you a little bit. I will be very concerned for you. This is a very high bar that Jesus is setting. He will not tolerate lukewarm faith. And in verse 19 through 20, though, the good news is he loves and he disciplines the lukewarm. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Now, some people say, well, it's obviously he's talking to Christians, and it might be. I do believe he's talking to some Christians. And also, that word there for discipline and that word there for reprove can be, not have to be, doesn't have to be used to just speak of believers. So, I think there's both that are present in the congregation. This is a church that as a whole, you got to remember, Jesus isn't writing to just individuals. He's writing to a corporate body. And uh, this body as a whole is lukewarm. And this body as a whole needs his discipline and needs his rebuke. But he doesn't point out that there's any that are living a faithful Christian life at this moment. But the good news is that Jesus loves people and he wants people to repent. Right? To reprove means to convict, to show you you're guilty. And sometimes you need to be convicted and shown you're guilty. To discipline means to educate, to train. It can also mean to punish. It's a word used in Hebrews 12 when the Bible talks about God disciplines His children. Speaking of the trials and the things in life that we go through that help conform our faith and transform our faith. So if you're a believer in Christ this morning and you're experiencing spiritual drift and elements of lukewarmness, If you find yourself growing cold and prayerless and detached from God's call in your life, you need to know that Jesus loves you and that he will discipline you for your good and he wants you to respond with zeal and repent. If this morning you kind of don't know where you are spiritually, you're not really sure if you're God's child or not, and maybe you're not experiencing spiritual drift, but maybe the Holy Spirit's been revealing to you that you have what the Bible calls this faith that won't save. Faith without works, a dead faith. Don't let the pride that has led to self-reliant, lukewarm faith prevent you from coming to Jesus and buying the gold that He offers and getting the clothing that He offers and getting the salve that He offers so that you can have spiritual sight and spiritual wealth 
and forgiveness and righteousness in Christ. I tell people, an old quote I heard a long time ago, years ago, that, you know, coming down an aisle and shaking a preacher's hand and praying with him or coming aside for some sort of counseling session to talk, those things won't save you. But the same thing that keeps people from doing that, that keeps people from walking down an aisle or keeps people from going to somebody for help or that keeps people from, from seeking spiritual answers, that, that will keep you out of heaven. And that's pride. Pride will absolutely keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. And so if we're going to come to Jesus, we have to come to him on his terms. And we have to come to him. That's why he says in verse 20, he says, he stands in the midst of his churches, and but here on this church, he's knocking. This verse has been used for years, right? We use it to, in evangelism. It's a very encouraging verse that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. This is one of the most discouraging verses I've read in all of these churches because we completely missed the picture. Because the first thing we need to understand is there's a problem here is that Jesus is standing outside the church having to knock. That's a disturbing picture. This church has gotten so detached from the mission and vision of Christ that they've locked him outside. And he's asking, can I come back in? <laughs> and he's knocking on the door, not like a beggar, not like a transient, not like a homeless man outside looking for a place to lay his head, but like a king that's come back to the castle wondering if his servants are going to respond appropriately. And he knocks on the door, but the good news of the Bible, it, it, it's, it's a tragedy. And at the same time, all the hope is right here. Because he stands outside the door, but yet he knocks. But yet he knocks. And that's the hope for us. That's the hope for lukewarmness. That's the hope for the unbeliever and for the believer. Is that though we can push Jesus away. And we can kind of push him out of our life. And schedule him out of our life. And just kind of ignore him out of our life. At the end of the day, he still comes and he sits outside the door. And he knocks. The concern is... When there's no knock. When there's silence. He says, if you hear my voice and respond, I will come in and we will fellowship together. He says, I'll eat with you and you with me. Now, you've got to remember in Middle Eastern times, in the first century in the Middle East, a meal together was a sign of friendship. I mean, this was something you did with family and close friends. You didn't just eat with anybody. In fact, some people hated Jesus because he would eat with sinners. He would eat with people that everybody else thought was unclean and ungodly. And Jesus would go over to their house and sit down and have a meal. Because he came to be the friend of sinners and to welcome sinners and to change sinners. And so when Jesus offers this, this isn't just some mamby-pamby thing that we're supposed to read over real fast. We need to know he's offering close and intimate fellowship. And that means, yeah, for the lost person that stands outside of Christ, you can have communion with the King of Kings. And that means for the believer who's grown cold and has pushed Jesus more and more away, that means you can rekindle your fellowship with Christ. And that means especially for the church that's drifted from the mission and vision of Christ, that if we'll open the door when Jesus, that Jesus is knocking on, that He will revive. He says, if anyone hears my voice. It doesn't seem that it takes corporate response or a church vote it just takes somebody to run to the stinking door and open it revival can be sparked in your family in this church in your life by one response it starts with one response one response jesus should always be welcomed and honored as king in his church in your life in your family 
But when we're no longer a place and a people of spiritual healing or spiritual refreshment, then we become a place that have stopped welcoming Jesus. And we need to repent. How do you know if you... If Jesus is welcome in your life, how do you know if Jesus is welcome in our church? How do we know if Jesus is welcome? Are we willing to obey him? It always gets back to obedience with Jesus because he's king. He's Lord. He's ruler. You don't know that you welcome Jesus in your life because you say nice things about him. He says you can say, call him Lord, Lord, and your heart be far from him. That has nothing to do with it, really. I mean, that's just one little thing. You know that you welcome and fellowship with Jesus because you do so on his terms. And his terms are obedience, faith and obedience. Do we obey him? Because if we're not walking in obedience, we're walking further and further away from Christ. Some people don't like to be told to obey. That's a hard word. We don't like that. You don't want your boss to come in and sit across from him. I want you to obey what I, you know, what your immediately wall goes up, right? Children don't like to hear it. People, it's, it's, just this, it's kind of like the word repent. We talked about it a few weeks ago. We have this in our culture, this negative stigmatism in our mind. Repent. We think of some person in all black jumping out from behind a bush with a family Bible, hitting us over the head with it, telling us to repent, you know. Obey. Like it's a bad word, but it's a good word. Especially if we could see it from his perspective. But we need to understand. There is no walking with Christ apart from obeying Christ. There is no walking with Christ apart from His Word. And it's not very powerful to read His Word and not obey His Word. Jesus desires fellowship with us, but we must be willing to open the door, to look to Him in faith, to seek His will, and not fool ourselves into thinking we can welcome a king, but not on His terms. But He promises us in verses 21 and 22, that though one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He's had this promise at the end of all these chapters. He gives a little promise out there to, if you'll conquer, if you'll conquer, if you'll conquer, if you'll conquer. Because it's his turn for the believer, the genuinely saved, those who've genuinely placed faith in Christ. Jesus says the way he, I'm going to talk. We call them church members. We call them attenders. Christian, Jesus calls us conquerors. So I don't think I'm a conqueror. I hope you are. Because he says it's the conquerors that he'll grant with him to sit with him on his throne. You say, how do I become a conqueror? I don't feel like a conqueror. You only become a conqueror through sharing in his victory. Right? And so Jesus, he says, as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Jesus has already conquered. He conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered hell. That's what the cross is all about. When Jesus died for us on the cross and rose from the dead, we, when we come to faith in Christ and we place our faith and trust in him, we share his victory. And so, yeah, Jesus conquered sin, death, and hell. We become victors over sin, death, and hell through him. And that's why when we baptize people, we immerse them under the water, buried with Christ, Raised to walk in newness of life, you're showing an outward visible symbol of what's already happened in your heart, or should have already happened in your heart, that you've placed your faith and trust in obedience, or excuse me, your faith and trust in Jesus and what He's done for you to gain the victory and to gain the conquering, that He's already done it. And you're saying, my faith's in Him. When He died, I died. When He rose, I rose. It's this identity that's happening. It's this outward symbol of what's already taken place in your heart and soul when you trusted Him. Now, then it's supposed to manifest itself in our life. And those who are sharing in Christ's victory over sin 
should actually share in Christ's victory over sin. Can you believe that? Can you believe that when Jesus said he died to... I mean, the Bible teaches, right? Read Romans 6. When he dies to, to take our sin away. He died for our sin. He died to set us free from sin so that we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. I'm just stupid enough to believe that stuff. That when he says it, he really means it. And that means that you don't have to stay in a state of lukewarmness. Because Jesus has already won the victory, and by faith with him, you can walk in victory. You can walk in victory. Do you, know that? <laughs> you can walk in victory. There's no such thing as a Christian that does not have what it takes within them through the Holy Spirit and the new nature being given to them in Christ to walk in spiritual victory over their sin, over their flesh. You, you're a conqueror. And Jesus says the conquerors, the conquerors, they will reign with me. He says, I'm not just going to welcome you into my kingdom. I'm going to give you a throne. I'm going to make you a co-heir with me, a joint heir, the Bible says, we are with Christ. That's the good news of the gospel. Some today need to understand that last verse when Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. What that means is, if you're within the sound of the voice of the reading of the Scripture, and you understand and you can tell what is being said and you understand what it means and how you're supposed to respond to that, then by all means you should respond. Because you don't just have ears to hear. God enables those ears to hear. And see, if we're believers in Christ, that's one of the things about being a believer in Christ. You begin to have the Holy Spirit speak to you through His Word. And to help change you and mold you and make you more like Jesus. And we're supposed to respond to that. Right? And at the same time, if you're, if you're outside of Christ, you need to understand the very first step in coming to Christ is having the Holy Spirit of God speak to your heart through the Word of God about Christ so that you can understand that Christ is who you need. So if you're here this morning and the Holy Spirit speaks to you through this Word about any of these things that we've talked about the last several weeks, the response that Jesus says is you need to hear, meaning you need to, you need to take heart and you need to obey and you need to listen. To what the Spirit says to the churches and to every person in this room. And some this morning, that means you need to respond in true, genuine, saving faith. Jesus didn't die for you to have a kind of, sort of, maybe faith. And some maybe need to respond in genuine, true, saving faith for the first time. Some, though, need to repent of your spiritual drift. Repent of lukewarm tendencies in our lives. Spiritual drift in our lives. We need to be zealous and repent. You once were consistently attending the local church, but not anymore. You once were reading your Bible regularly. Now it's never or extremely rarely. You once prayed with passion. Now you hardly pray. You once gave regularly. You don't remember the last time you gave. You're lukewarm. You're tepid. And that's not something to consistently walk in. That's something to be repented of. And if Jesus has convicted you this morning, if he's reproved you this morning, if he's disciplining you this morning, be zealous and repent this morning because that, Jesus is showing you that he loves you. Despite your lukewarmness, despite your tepidness, despite your depravity, despite your rebelliousness, Jesus loves you. And he wants you to repent this morning. He wants to give you a faith that is productive and a faith that is zealous and a faith that bears good fruit. Can we pray this morning?
with heads bowed and eyes closed. If I can pray for you this morning, I want to do so.